0: For the third time since its birth as an independent state, Israel is embroiled in a war with the Arab nations that surround her. Her forces are outnumbered two to one. Today, Israeli armor is facing a group of Arab countries united by defense agreements and in a far stronger position to sweep Israel into the sea. On June 4th, 1967, Israel was surrounded and under siege by five Arab armies threatening an imminent war of annihilation against the Jewish state. For the last three weeks, Israel had been in a wait-and-see posture, its entire military on red alert, but so far restrained from anything that could provoke war. But by now, it was clear that war was coming, and although Israel's leaders were confident in victory, they were, on paper, totally outgunned by the combined might of the Arab forces— They needed to tip the balance in their favor, and there was one way to do that. A surprise, preemptive strike to hit as much of the enemy as they could. Israel's security cabinet voted to attack, and that evening, Prime Minister Levi Eshkol sat down with his Minister of Defense, war hero Moshe Dayan, and gave the order. Just after 7 a.m. the next morning, June 5th, Israel made an extraordinarily bold gamble that put the entire country in peril if it didn't work. At that moment, nearly every single Israeli Air Force jet took off in the direction of Egypt. Only 12 planes were left to defend the country from the 900 planes that the Arabs could launch. Flying at high speed less than 50 feet above the ground to avoid radar detection, the Israeli pilots flew in radio silence. If something went wrong, they were on their own. Israel calculated that around 25% to one third of their planes would be shot down. Years of Israeli intelligence, some of which came at the cost of lives, had identified every single detail of every single Egyptian airbase, airplane, and even pilot. Israel had one shot to get this right. As its air force raced towards their targets, a Jordanian radar station picked up the planes and frantically radioed Egypt that the Israelis were coming. But the day before, Egypt had changed its radio frequencies and forgot to give the new codes to Jordan. And anyway, Egypt's pilots had flown their patrols at dawn, never expecting an Israeli attack in broad daylight. They were all sitting down at breakfast, their top commanders in bed after long days and nights of preparations. By the time they realized what was happening, it was too late. All over Egypt at 7.30 in the morning, Israeli aircraft dive-bombed the bases. They destroyed planes on the ground and bombed the runway so that any aircraft that survived still wouldn't be able to take off. Israel hit radars and anti-aircraft sites so they couldn't be detected or shot down. The Israeli pilots would fly to their targets, drop their bombs, race for home, rest for 10 minutes while their plane was refueled and rearmed, and then do it all over again. For three hours, Israel relentlessly pummeled Egypt's air force, one of the most formidable in the world. By 10.30 a.m., around 70% of Egypt's planes were destroyed, a third of their pilots killed, nearly every airbase crippled. Israel had lost eight planes and five pilots. Israel Defense Force Chief of Staff Yitzhak Rabin received a one line report quote, The Egyptian Air Force has ceased to exist. End quote. The dire threat that was Egyptian aircraft running roughshod over Israeli cities was now off the table. So crucial was this gamble and so wildly successful that Shimon Peres, one of Israel's most enduring leaders, later said that the Six-Day War had actually been won in the first two hours. Egypt, though, declared victory, and people took to the streets to celebrate their win against Israel. Egypt announced that its next stop was Tel Aviv, which wasn't even remotely true. Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, whose hubris had gotten them into this mess, couldn't get anyone on the phone to tell him the real bad news. And then, in the midst of this confusion, Israel's ground forces invaded Egypt. The Six-Day War of June 1967 has gone down as one of the most spectacular military victories in modern history. Israel had planned for a resolute defense of the country against five Arab armies. But by the end of the week, it had captured territory tripling the size of the country, including Jerusalem and all the Jewish holy sites throughout the West Bank, It was not the kind of victory Israel had planned for, and it was so surprising that 56 years later, Israel is still in many ways coming to grips with it. This isn't a military history podcast, so I'm not going to spend too much time on the nitty-gritty battle details, but today we're talking the broad strokes of the 1967 Six-Day War and Israel's tremendous but costly victory. This is Season 7 of Jew I Don't Know on Israeli history from 1967 to 1977, I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. By noon on the first day, June 5, 1967, Israel was fighting a three-front war. Egypt in the south, Syria in the north, and Jordan in the east. As Israel bombed the Egyptian air force into oblivion, Jordan began firing on Israeli targets in Jerusalem and central Israel. King Hussein of Jordan didn't want a war with Israel. He was perfectly happy with the status quo. Since 1948, Jordan had occupied the West Bank and the eastern half of Jerusalem, including the Old City, and he didn't want to lose that. But with every other Arab country fighting, he couldn't sit it out. So Prime Minister Levi Eshkol sent a message to the king. Don't attack us, and we won't attack you. This was not a war of conquest for Israel, but a defensive war for survival. In response, Jordan massively increased its attack. Jordanian and Iraqi aircraft hit Israeli cities, including as far as Netanya on the coast of the Mediterranean. They were fully committed. Up in the north, Syria and Lebanon were highly excited by Egypt's false claims of victory against the Israelis down south. Lebanese and Syrian aircraft attacked towns in northern Israel and launched artillery barrages at settlements along the border, killing soldiers and civilians alike. So in response... Three hours after wiping out Egypt's air force, Israel demolished Syria's, too, and Jordan's, destroying every Jordanian airplane that had attacked Israel that morning. For good measure, Israeli jets flew as far as Iraq to bomb an air base there. This was followed up by Israeli ground forces. Tanks and trucks and soldiers swarmed into the Arab lines on the Egyptian and Jordanian fronts. Israeli forces began a fierce battle on the outskirts of Jerusalem, fighting in close quarters against the Jordanians to take strategic positions in and around the city. It was bloody, tough fighting, but the Israelis were steadily gaining everywhere. By the afternoon of the first day of fighting, Israel had to make decisions about whether and how much territory to capture. With one exception, the purpose of this war was not to gain territory. And that exception was Egypt's Sinai Peninsula on the border with Israel the triangular desert that was crucial to international commerce and Israel's economy. On the far west side of Sinai, close to Cairo, was the Suez Canal, the major global shipping channel. On the south side was the Straits of Tehran, the narrow waterway that connected Israel's port city of Eilat with the Red Sea and then the oceans beyond. Egypt's blockade of the Straits of Tehran a couple weeks earlier had been a major cause of the war, and Israel's goal was to take the Sinai Peninsula in order to open it back up, while also pushing the Egyptian military back to the other side of the Suez Canal, far away from Israel. There were still other territories in play. The Gaza Strip, which belonged to Egypt, and the Golan Heights, which belonged to Syria, and the West Bank, which belonged to Jordan. But now Israel was in a position where it could take those territories. And none more so than the holy city itself, Jerusalem. Israeli leaders on both the right and left believed that King Hussein of Jordan had made a fatal mistake in attacking Israel. He provided the opportunity for Israel to take back the old city. Menachem Begin, the longtime leader of Israel's right-wing opposition, was convinced that a historic moment was at hand. Yehuda Avner, a close advisor to several Israeli prime ministers, including Eshkol and later Begin, wrote that Begin, quote, "...was gripped by Jewish memories as old as time." His all-encompassing grasp of Jewish history stirred his deepest convictions, causing him to ponder how much longer Israel could wait before restoring to the bosom of its people Jewry's most sanctified treasures locked behind the old city's walls, End quote. While artillery shells exploded all around Israel's parliament building, the Knesset, Begin sent his driver to sit in the building's driveway, to wait for the prime minister to show up. Which is just a visual I love, and... Makes a compelling case for, you know, the invention of text messaging. This poor guy hunkered down in his car so Begin can get a heads up to argue for Jerusalem. Eshkol pulled up and the driver ran inside to bring Begin into the meeting. The leaders of Israel gathered in the cabinet room and Eshkol asked Begin to bake his case. But just as Menachem Begin started speaking, soldiers burst into the room and threw themselves on top of the ministers artillery shells came crashing into the Knesset. Israel's leaders were hastily shoved into a storage closet in the basement where they sat down on dusty chairs and continued debating the fate of Judaism's most important city. Begin made his case. Quote, the Jordanian army is all but smashed and our own army is at the city's gates. Our soldiers are almost in sight of the Western Wall. How can we tell them not to reach it? We have in our hands a gift of history, future generations will never forgive us if we do not seize it, end quote. Bagan's colleague on the left, Igal Alon, another experienced war hero, agreed, quote, unless and until Jewish feet are deep inside the old city and on the Temple Mount, Jerusalem will remain forever divided. We have to occupy it physically, end quote. But Prime Minister Eshkol wasn't convinced. It would be nasty house to house fighting with a huge loss of life and could damage the holy places of all three faiths. He worried that the whole world would come down against Israel for such a risky move. Israel would lose the sympathy it had built up over the last few weeks as the underdog facing annihilation. He thought there was a good chance, anyway, that once Israel surrounded Jerusalem, Jordan would just give up. Moshe Dayan, the Minister of Defense, was also against seizing the old city. Eshkol, ever hesitant to make a definitive decision, mumbled that still, in spite of it all, maybe it wasn't the worst idea. But at 4 a.m. on day two, things changed. The United Nations announced its intention to call for an immediate ceasefire. Israel had been fighting the Egyptians and Jordanians all night long and was this close to achieving major objectives. If a ceasefire were to take effect, Israel would lose this one chance to retake Jerusalem. By 7 a.m., Moshe Dayan agreed and Eshkol gave the order for Israeli troops to move in and take the Old City. Every war has the battles which achieve mythic national status. For Israel in a six-day war, the Air Force's incredible feat on the first day is one of those. And another is the fight for Jerusalem, which began on the first day of the war and ran through the second and third. This battle had a personal dimension to it. Losing Jerusalem's old city in the 1948 War of Independence had been a singular loss amidst the greater victory. And as we heard from Rabbi Yehuda Cook in the last episode, this division of Jerusalem was deeply felt. Before the attack began just past midnight, the commander of Jerusalem's forces, Uzi Narkis, told his soldiers, Let's hope this time will atone for the sin of 1948. The fight for the city was accordingly fierce. Perhaps the defining attack took place at a strategic location known as Ammunition Hill. The American Israeli scholar, diplomat, and politician Michael Oren writes that Ammunition Hill was the strongest fortification in Jerusalem quote, a ganglia of trenches, bunkers, minefields, and concrete obstacles. End quote. For the Israelis, the Jordanian occupation of this spot posed a continuous threat to Jewish West Jerusalem and thus had to be taken. For the Jordanians, Ammunition Hill was their main line of defense for the eastern half of the city and had to be defended at all costs. At 1.30 a.m., the Israelis attacked. Separated by mere meters, it was a vicious fight. Grenades and snipers tore apart the Israeli paratroopers and almost every officer was killed while leading their men forward. For hours, the Israelis threw themselves at the Jordanians, desperately trying to use their trenches as cover, climbing over the bodies of their friends while pushing towards a Jordanian position. The Jordanians were equally desperate as their ammunition ran low, their dead and wounded piled up. Michael Oren reports that at 4.30 a.m., the Israelis had reached the Jordanian bunker. The senior Jordanian officer radioed back to his command, quote, the battle is now hand to hand, you will no longer hear from me, but I hope you will hear about me and my men, end quote. He managed to escape just as the Israelis overran the command bunker, blowing it up and seizing the hill by 5.15 a.m. The four-hour fight for Ammunition Hill claimed 35 Israelis, one quarter of the total attack force, and 71 Jordanians. By early the next morning, the third day of the war, June 7th, Israeli forces had surrounded Jerusalem. Jordanian forces had been pushed out of most of the rest of the West Bank, and later that day Israel would take key cities like Nablus and Jericho from retreating Jordanians. Against Egypt, Israel had cut off the Gaza Strip from the Egyptian force, and the army had penetrated most of the way through the Sinai Peninsula towards the Suez Canal and the Straits of Tehran, the two strategic waterways. The Egyptians were retreating everywhere. In Jerusalem, the commander of the Israeli brigade, Mordechai Gur, known as Mota, sat atop the ancient Mount of Allah's cemetery, staring at his troops ready to go just outside the old city's medieval walls. He sent a message to his soldiers. Quote, we occupy the heights overlooking the old city. In a little while we will enter it. The ancient city of Jerusalem, which for generations we have dreamt of and striven for, we will be the first to enter it. The Jewish nation is awaiting our victory. Israel awaits this historic hour. Be proud. Good luck. End quote. At 945, Madagur received the order to begin the assault. Some of the soldiers had been on the losing end in 1948, and as they made their way to the gates of the old city, Israel's leaders came pouring in from all over the country. Yitzhak Rabin, the IDF chief of staff, Moshe Dayan, the minister of defense, Shlomo Gorin, the chief rabbi of the IDF, There was sporadic fighting, but Jordanian defenses were very weak, and the Israelis barreled through. At about 10 a.m. came Maragur's fateful words over the radio. The Temple Mount is ours. Within moments, the remaining Arab officials surrendered the city and gave up their arms. According to Michael Oren, the Israelis didn't know how to get to the Western Wall and had to ask an elderly Arab man for directions. Soon hundreds of soldiers had gathered, singing, crying, while Rabbi Shlomo Gorin blew the shofar, recited prayers, and declared, quote, I, General Shlomo Gorin, Chief Rabbi of the Israel Defense Forces, have come to this place never to leave it again, end quote. A photographer snapped an instantly famous photograph of the three Israeli military leaders, Uzi Narkis, Yitzhak Rabin, and Moshe Dayan, striding into the old city. Another photo showed three Israeli soldiers, looking utterly dazed, exhausted, and triumphant, standing before the Western Wall. Even those who were not religious were overtaken by the ideas of redemption and divine favor. Yitzhak Rabin said quote, When we reached the Western Wall, I was breathless. It seemed as though all the tears of centuries were striving to break out of the men crowded into that narrow alley, while all the hopes of generations proclaimed, this is no time for weeping, it is a moment of redemption, of hope, End quote. It had cost the lives of 97 Israeli paratroopers, who could not have known what their sacrifice had brought. Israel's victories were happening so quickly that the top command could barely keep up with events on so many fronts. But there was still one overarching fear, that the Soviet Union would enter the war to save the Arabs. Because of this, Israel had not invaded the Golan Heights in the north, since Syria was a close client of the Soviet Union, and they didn't want to provoke them. On day four of the war, Israeli forces came under attack from what appeared to be ships off the coast of the Sinai Peninsula along the front with Egypt, The Air Force and Navy had standing orders to sink any unidentified ships in the area, and they converged on what seemed like an Egyptian destroyer, hitting it hard. The ship wasn't sunk, but the attack killed 34 sailors and injured another 170. But then Yitzhak Rabin received bad news back at headquarters. The ship was a Soviet spy vessel. He was terrified that this would bring the Soviets into the war by a reprisal attack on Israel. As they waited to see what would happen, another clarification came in. The ship wasn't Soviet. It was American. The Israelis had attacked the USS Liberty, an American spy ship that hadn't received a critical communication from the U.S. Navy to move itself 100 miles off the coast, instead lingering too close to shore. In the fog of war, the Israelis hadn't been able to identify the ship, not reporting any American flags or other markings. In the confusion, they attacked. Yitzhak Rabin noted that several of the sailors killed were American Jews who were serving aboard because they spoke Hebrew and could understand the signals the ship was listening to. President Lyndon Johnson had received a report that the U.S. Liberty had been attacked by Soviet planes and was preparing an American reprisal. Both Rabin and Johnson were relieved to learn that it was friends rather than enemies who had caused this terrible tragedy. In the following years, Israel paid millions of dollars in reparations to the families of the dead and wounded. By the end of day four, Egypt in the south and Jordan in the east were defeated, and President Nasser of Egypt and King Hussein of Jordan announced their intentions to accept a ceasefire. The action was now focused on the northern front with Syria, where the Arab forces used the Golan Heights to relentlessly attack Israel, a tactic they'd been using for years. High up on the mountains overlooking Israel down below in the valley, the Golan was a perfect strategic site, and it drove the northerners nuts that Israel was refusing to allow them to attack because of the fear of Soviet intervention. Their anger was articulated by David Elazar, the commander in the north. Quote, After all the trouble they've caused, after the shellings and the harassments, are those arrogant bastards going to be left on top of the hills riding on our backs? If the state of Israel is incapable of defending us, we're entitled to know. We should be told outright that we are not part of the state, Not entitled to the protection of the army. We should be told to leave our homes and flee from this nightmare. By the next morning, June 9th, day five, with the Egyptians and Jordanians mostly out of the picture and the Syrians on the back foot, Defense Minister Moshe Dayan finally gave the order to take the Golan Heights. It was another vicious day of fighting as the Israelis fought to reach the Syrian town of Kunitra, only 40 miles from Damascus. The war was winding down and everyone knew it the Israelis, the Arabs, the Soviets, the United States, the Syrians retreated. By 6.30 p.m. on June 10th, the sixth day, the ceasefire went into effect. The war was over. In the six days of fighting, Israel lost as many as 800 soldiers. And to put that into perspective, that would be the equivalent today of the United States losing around 105,000 troops in a single week. It was a sacrifice that touched every single Israeli. The Arabs combined lost around 15,000 soldiers, almost all of those Egyptians. Because so much of the fighting in the war had taken place on the borders or in the desert, few civilians on either side were killed. The Israelis held thousands of prisoners of war, the Arabs had captured only 15. The Arab militaries were decimated, and much of what hadn't been destroyed had been captured by the Israelis. Israel wiped out 469 Arab aircraft in the most astonishing feat of military aviation history, at a cost of 36 planes and 18 pilots. But that still represented a fifth of Israel's air power, not easily replenished. It was a tough victory. And, of course, there was the territory. In six days, Israel tripled its size. Five territories were captured. And as we'll see in coming episodes, each had its own specific geography, demography, strategic importance, and role to play in what followed. From Egypt was taken the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. From Jordan, the West Bank and the eastern half of Jerusalem. From Syria, the Golan Heights. It was a stunning achievement. The impact would be enormous indeed. So next episode, we'll get into the immediate impact of the war and some of the crucial early decisions that came to have far-reaching consequences. You can find me at Jewautono.com, and my email is Podcast at gmail.com Thanks for listening, everyone. L'Hithra out. See you later.